You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 19. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode 19. I'm Will, and she's excited because it's Octagon Pizza Day in the lunchroom. It's Rebecca! With a side of corn! <laughs> that was always a bummer. They know nobody's going to eat that corn. Pizza and corn? Yeah. I always ate the corn. Did I thought you? I appreciated the whole ensemble. I appreciate somebody who appreciates lunchroom food. I did too. We have reasons that I did, but we'll talk about that later in the countdown. That's good. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, what's been on the menu in your life? What's (laughs) what's cooking these days? (laughs) So here's what's cooking. Uh, The smell of cat food (laughs) in the house, and also the dog's mania over the smell of cat food. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's definitely happening. So, this has been a very, uh, very eventful week in the good old U.S. of A. And we're not going to belabor any of that because uh, we've all lived through it. And good God, we're all tired and ready for a nap, even if we are feeling relieved and jubilant. And and speaking of fresh starts, uh, I found a present in the road this week. Yes. Which was a little kitten. They jumped out of a leaf pile on our dog Porter's walk and started following me, and now it lives in our home. Yes. So that's what's cooking is the smell of cat food. It's very funny because he's not even been here very long, and we don't even know the gender because he's a little bitty baby. But we think it's a boy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, just, oh, we'll let on, you know. On next podcast, we'll share you, we'll share the name we've chosen for this cat, uh, depending mm-hmm. on its gender. And right now, we're expecting the cat to take a nap, but I'm holding a rope <laughs> On the side of the chair, so he'll play with that and not be bad while we're recording. Yeah, you may hear that. Yeah, you probably will hear that. But anyway, that's what's cooking. And we're going to do it right this time from the beginning. So the cat food on the menu is like that expensive stuff Mm -hmm. from the pet store that isn't full of corn and phosphorus. That is very bad for your cat, like what they just sell for $5 a bag at the grocery store. Don't buy it. Mm -hmm. You got to get the good stuff. And uh, the dog is very jealous. <laughs> very jealous of that cat food. He, he thinks it should be for him. Well, what are we talking about this week? Today, even. Well, on today's show, we're cooking up something special, which is a countdown on our personal favorite examples of the cook or chef archetype. Uh-huh. So I have four and Will has four. It's a top eight. Okay. Well, how are we defining a fictional cook or chef chef for our purposes this week? Okay. First of all, I just said broadly, it has to be fictional. Like, uh-huh. cause I, I'm not interested in doing anyone who is like a character. Like you could argue that Gordon Ramsay has fictionalized uh-huh. elements to his personality. And I even thought about that crazy lady, Sandra Lee, you know, who make, who used to make those terrible, terrible, uh, like desserts on the food network. Uh-huh. And it was just garbage. Like she got a 
an angel food cake and she put nuts around it and chocolate frosting and said it was for Kwanzaa and it was just like this horrible looking piece of trash. Anyway, you could argue that she's a character, uh-huh. Sandra Lee or Gordon Ramsay, but I'm I'm going back in fiction. Okay, these are people in stories. Yeah, in stories. Got it. And then also, I, I know we just wanted to do one that was like really more quotidian. Mm-hmm. Because we've been doing some very high fantasy, dramatic, monster, supernatural ones for the month of October. So we're and just going to... And this one felt kind of fresh and weird. Yeah. I, I thought it, was, it was interesting to me when we it jumped out at me on our list. Yeah, we're, we're getting back to the earth. We're going back to our roots. Okay, well, because we know what a cook is, I, I, I think, uh, do you want to give us any uh, history about where like the cook character comes from? So this is interesting because I kept thinking... Maybe my Google searches are weird, but I kept thinking like... Like Beowulf or someone would have written about ye old cook mm-hmm. from the village of somewhere in like the ten hundreds or whatever. And I never came across that like I expected. The first real reference that I sort of even found to like someone being a well-known cook was in France in the 1700s in Revolution era France. Uh, because we had our first sort of celebrity chef, mm-hmm. who was uh, Marie-Antoine Carême. And uh, his parents abandoned him during the French Revolution. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go work at a chop house, and then I'm going to invent grand cuisine. Okay. So that's what he did. And so he was like kind of the like first, I don't know, like well-known to ele- like to elevate food to an art form. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like before then in literature and stuff, like I... Kept looking for, like, information about, I don't know, cooks in, like, ancient Greece. Because, you know, you always want to go back there. Uh I really, I I didn't see anything. Tell me if you did, but I really didn't find anything. Well, you're bringing up a few things I'm thinking about now. Because the best way to explain how we got to the uh, chef cook character for me was the advent of uh, cooking as a specialization in civilizations. You start seeing people who are cooking for the welfare and sustenance of their families, but also people who are professionally cooking. Uh, And like in France, especially when you had some people professionally cooking for upper class people, they decide to really embellish it and make them feel like it's a reflection of class, you know, what you eat and that sort of thing. Which is interesting because I like, I feel like, Okay, I kept looking for, I don't know, references to like an old mess cook, like an old cook in the Navy, you yeah. know, in a pirate story or something like that. It's like, do they, did they not have that? I almost feel like... They we, weren't using them as characters in stories yeah, for a long time. Exactly. Like, I almost feel like we never even really thought about that as a fun or interesting thing culturally until the French came along and invented grand cuisine. Interesting. Because okay. before then, it's just kind of like, yeah, who cares? Food is something we put over a spit and turn it till it's done so uh-huh. we don't die of malnourishment. Well, because you mentioned that, I was going to say uh, we know that the earliest cooks existed 1.5 million years ago with Homo erectus when they were first using fire to cook meat and that sort of thing. Me remember so, that. So, yeah, so that, was, that was the earliest thing. That was fun. Uh, and then I was also going to say in America, I think we first really start seeing the celebrity chef coming out of uh, World War II with uh, Julia Child. I think she's probably the beginning of it. Who came from French cuisine? Yes. And so yes, I feel like did. that's 
that's where this sort of lifts off. Um, a lot of her old shows are on YouTube, and they are a delight to watch if you're grossed out by confit, as most of us are. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, and of course, you understand why she was really popular, too, because she had just, like, oodles of charisma. Mm -hmm. She really was. Like, she really had a great presence on the camera. So I can understand why that would have been a, a really popular thing in, like, earlier television history, too. Mm -hmm. But it's just really weird. I kept looking for like something like Robert Louis Stevenson wrote about a cook on the Navy <laughs> ship. Like I kept looking for that and I didn't see it. So I just think we have the French to thank for all of this. So Uh, so, uh, a fun question for you here. Uh, should we give people one piece of personal cooking advice, even if it's dumb? What's one thing that you just really believe in, even if it's not a big deal, that you feel like other people would benefit from? And I can give you a stupid example if that will help. Yes, please. Okay. I would say almost all the time, you never should use as much water as people say. <laughs> like, never. Uh, especially in the old El Paso taco dinner kit. They say to you, I believe this wholeheartedly. They say to use two-thirds cup of water. You don't need that. You need maybe a half and maybe less than that if you keep the fat in there. So it's never as much water as they say. That's garbage. Don't believe it. Yeah, that'll, that'll make for some real thin sauce yes. around your taco meat. Yes. That would be gross. I guess I would say... Whenever you're cooking at every stage, look at it and be like, would this be improved if I put a little salt on it? And the uh -huh. answer is almost always yes. Uh-huh. So like don't under season your food. Just be like, I'm gonna sprinkle some salt on here. Okay. You know? And for a whole dish, you can get away with like half of a teaspoon. It's probably not not a whole lot of salt that you need, but you need some. Mm-hmm. And it will improve everything. This is for someone who never cooks. Like if that, that, cause I thought that's like the level we're supposed to. Uh huh. Okay. So that's, that's the, the advice that okay. I have. I feel like we're ready. <laughs> Me too. I feel like a legendary cook. Well, do you want to start us off with your first pick? Number eight. He's a world famous Canadian chef who had the opportunity to serve dog burgers to a young Alanis Morissette. <laughs> I'm talking about Barth. The cook from Barth's Burgers on You Can't Do That on Television. Oh, I remember that name. Do you remember the mm -hmm. show at all? Yeah, I remember it a okay, lot. Yeah. I remember that the background for the set looked like the little crossbars on like a jungle gym. It did. That was one of their sets and they, that they said. And they sat on like a, looked like a, like a windowsill, like the Muppet Babies would sit around. <laughs> um, and then yeah, I that was like their sit around, talk okay. to each other set. And it's just a bunch of kids. And then there's an old man with the headset and lots of slime. Yes, all of these things are true about the show. Let's, okay. let's, let's take a look back at You Can't Do That on Television. So this is a Canadian um, export that got very, very popular, and it ran from 1979 to 1990. So okay. I actually had like a pretty long length of years on there. Um, and that also explains why I never saw Alanis Morissette on it, because I watched it before she was on the show. I think. Oh, okay. Because I watched this when I was teeny tiny, because um, my mamaw had cable. So... This was a Canadian sketch comedy show that was basically a kid version of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. They took all of the like little oh. sketch setups from there, and they had a bunch of recurring characters and recurring skits. And so one of the ones that was very, very memorable 
to my young, indelibly printed little, like, four-year-old brain, and now I remember it forever, was Barth. He ran a restaurant called Barth's Burgers and Fries, and it was a little diner set that had a booth, and the skits were inevitably just always about the kids coming in there, and they would complain about how gross the food was, and then he would say something disgusting about how, you know, it was, he repurposed vomit from his earlier customers. Uh And, um... He used questionable meat. And we never really get an explanation as to why the kids keep going to Barth's to um, eat there. But I I guess it's like the only restaurant in their little hometown. Because also, several of the kids would work at Barth's at one time or another if they needed money. It's like you'd have to go get abused by Barth for a while. Uh, I was going to say, from what I remember, I feel like a lot of the sketches on that show had to do with kids enduring like misery and torture of some sort. Like there was like a dungeon sketch. Um, and there was one where the kid's mom is real worried he's going to get run over by a car and he's not going to have clean underwear. That happened all the time. <laughs> uh, they're getting slimed on all the time. There's yes. a lot of humor in like the m- misery. Uh, I don't know why. That must be part of the Canadian psyche. Maybe. No, I don't know. No, and um, purposely the... Oh, I can't remember the producer's name, but the one trustworthy adult who was the who played the producer on yeah. the headset, they needed to have that character in there just to make sure that kids knew that it wasn't the case that all adults were abusive and terrible. Just okay. like, you know, just most of them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the great thing about Barth in his in his area is that when I was remembering him, I was just remembering him looking like a very kind of like schlubby, dirty man. And mm-hmm. then when I was looking at the character design when I was like doing research for this, it actually was hilarious to me how perfectly awful they made him look. Um, so he had this like horrible simulacrum of tacky clothes. So he had like this ghastly plaid shirt that wasn't a proper plaid, but it was like a, a simulated plaid and it was this horrible garish red and yellow. Uh-huh. He had an apron that was filthy and covered with paw prints, which also <laughs> implied that he served dog meat. Uh-huh. And then he had like comically painted on five o'clock shadow. And then this disgusting, filthy cook cook's hat with his name, Barth printed uh-huh. across the top of it. Hey Barth, mm-hmm. do you know that a person coming in here has a 75% chance of getting food poisoning? Yeah, I know. Not a very good record, is it? Mm, it's pathetic. Mm. Well, what do you intend to do about it? Raise it to 100% by adding <laughs> more food poison to my burger mixture. Trouble is, though, the price of food poison has shot up lately. And his running gag was whenever a kid would say something with an earshot of him about like, whoa, this restaurant is gross. He'd be like, I heard that. Like that was his, oh, yeah, his I was that. I heard that. That yeah. was his, that was his uh, shtick. Um, and then also, he would also say, waste not, want not, I always say, whenever he would pick up people's like leftovers <laughs> and put it in the stew pot uh-huh. for later. So anyway, I just, I remember Barth, he was very disgusting and he really, really imprinted on my mind. And uh, I think when we think of an authority figure cook who has lost their passion for all things in life, <laughs> Barth is the one we turn to. And we have the Canadians to think for that, thank for that. And fun fact, this was the origin of Nickelodeon's slime deal. Uh-huh. Because they came up with it for this show. And then when Nickelodeon bought it to export, then that like sliming people became their signature move. And so 
on you can't do it on television if you said I don't know that's what you would get slapped for I read that they paid all the kids extra if they got slimed in an episode well I would hope they would but, <laughs> so they knew that it was like a nice fun thing and not like a oh I got punished this episode I don't know It's, it's one of our most beloved 80s, well, I, you know, I associate it with the 80s, definitely, but 80s exports from Canada that I think a lot of people don't talk about, but I think a lot of people do remember. Uh-huh. Number seven. My first pick believes bubble tape gum is not part of a well-balanced diet. This is the lunch lady for the famous 1991 bubble tape commercial. <laughs> now this is a deep cut uh, do you remember this commercial oh, i remember it very well because bubble tape was it was a very attractive product when advertised mm-hmm. and it was a candy that i bought frequently it was like the super soaker of foods it was it, especially it exactly of, like of it. gum yeah it was like the best gum it was of the all big gum. sugar wad you could just cram in there yeah, because you could never resist too long. It was supposed to be dispensed like a little tape dispenser, and that was the whole appeal and also the hook. But, of course, if you bought some for yourself, nine times out of ten, you would probably open the container and then take a bite out of the half roll. Just a big <laughs> you want Yeah, you want that chew, that chew did, feeling. Did you like the pink one or the grape the one? The pink one, definitely. See, and I was all into the grape. The oh, grape really? was my favorite. Yeah. Okay. The great bubble tape was where it's at. I mean, they were both good. Anyway. This was a really, really 90s product. This was like the really good part of the 90s that I liked. Like this was like the early part. This was like uh, Darlene Connor 90s, like Beavis and Butthead. Nobody gets this Gen X kind of thing. Um, And the footage for the commercial, if you don't remember, it's kind of like this um, band art poster filter on everything. Yeah. Where it looks like it doesn't have many frames per second. It's like... um, And it's like... That band Green Jelly. It's that kind of uh, art feeling to it. And it's kind of like desaturated, almost like aged. I I remember that too. It's been years since I've seen the commercial. And and in the commercial, they're talking about all these like funny adult characters you'll know from your school uh, who don't like you eating bubble tape because bubble tape is, quote, for you, not for them. That was their big slogan. Attention! Your gym teacher escaped from charm school, irons his underwear, watches hygiene films, he says, anyone chewing bubble tape owes me 50 push-ups. The lunch lady wears a hairnet, serves mashed potatoes with an ice cream scoop, puts gravy on everything. She says, bubble tape is not part of a well-balanced diet. Bubble tape, it's six feet of bubble gum for you, not them. That was big in the early 90s, uh-huh. especially. I don't even, like, what was well, that Gen X? Is that Gen X thing. It's like, we're so disaffected. We not don't relate at all to the generation before us. There's nothing for us. You know, that kind of thing. Except for bubble tape. God bless yeah, us. Yeah. It's all we had. Yeah. And then later, OK Soda, which didn't even make it out of test markets. I don't even remember that one. It was a Coca-Cola appeal to Gen X in like 1994. Oh, weird. And I was in the test market for it. And it was like melon soda that was like sarcastic in in nineties. I don't even know how that's oh, that's it though. That's the that's the hook. But yeah, we all we had was food. Well, in the commercial, they are talking about your gym teacher, and they are talking about the lunch lady character. And I definitely remember her the most. And maybe this is 
changing as lunch menus catch up with our actual nutritional needs and also different types of schools you can go to. But for many decades, especially in public schools, the lunch lady was a very specific character and stereotype that we all instantly recognize and could describe to you. And I feel like that maybe isn't as true uh, now. Anymore, probably not. I do want to, I will, we we will talk about this later for one of my picks, but that's definitely a thing. Well, I don't want to uh, step on that if you'd like to talk about it for your pick, but uh, can I mention your mom was a lunch lady. Yes, she was. uh, Or a cafeteria worker. I don't know what she called it. We called it lunch lady. (laughs) Okay. We called all of them, We and all the lunch ladies that she was friends with, we call all of them lunch ladies too. Okay. Daughter of a a lunch lady. I'm a lunch lady's daughter. Look. Yes. uh, That'd be a great country song. It would be. Loretta Lynn wishes she could. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm no, there probably, you could talk for ages about that, but can you describe for people like what your mom's lunch lady role was? Like what line did she work? What did she do in the back? What kind of lunch lady personality did she have? Okay, so I feel like the lunch ladies at my mom's school, they all sort of switched roles. Like I feel like maybe one of them was the cashier most of the time, but I'm trying to think there was about eight to 10 of them. And I knew about four of to five of them really well. Uh-huh. I'm trying to remember. And my mom was just like, they were all team players. And interestingly, like a lot of the food, even back then, was like homemade, even though it was moving oh. away from that. Because I remember they used to make rolls from scratch okay. for their dinners. And then even gradually while I was in school, I remember like their process getting more and more just packaged and automated uh-huh. because they started getting food like fun foods in. Like here's some pizzas that you can, that are you know, franchise some crappy name brand and then you can have it in there. Not like a fast food name brand, yeah. but um, an a la carte item is what, they, mm-hmm. is what they were. So and it like, it, it even changed, but my mom was like wild as hell as a lunch lady. I, I mean, I don't know, like I love my mom and she is a one of a kind person, but as a lunch lady, my mom was... You said she was like showering your friends with like free rolls and fries just she'd just come out there and give it away yeah so which is like my dream when i was in school if you would have gone to school with me in high school you would have been so thrilled like you would have like you would have had the best time in the world because um like she was the lunch lady at our high school so Uh my sister was in high school my mom was lunch lady there and then when i was in high school you know my mom was like we were right on back to back for each other me and my sister and um yeah no mom used to come out my freshman year and just bring like wads of like pizza and free food to my table to like you know like my little friends from band class who were mostly boys too so uh-huh. she like so they appreciated it because I think most children starved at school yes. all I, the time. Oh boy, I, I was gonna talk a whole thing about that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, mom freely gave away food okay. all the time, and she waved kids through her line all the time, and. I think it was justified. <laughs> no child should have to pay for food in a school. Yeah. I, I, agree, I agree with that too. Now, uh, I don't know how the business of the cafeteria stayed afloat, but I assume they did their money laundering and it all worked out in the end. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if your mom looked like this, but in the commercial, I feel like they really captured the way we thought of lunch ladies at the time and the way all our lunch ladies looked like at our school. Um, so, they say in the commercial, you know, she serves mashed potatoes with an ice cream scoop, which they all did. That is true. Because um, it helped you push the of potatoes course. off the spoon. It's a good idea. Yeah. They put gravy on everything, which they did. Salisbury steak gravy on everything. Yes, it and, masked the flavor. And in the ca- commercial, she's handing uh, a 
lunch tray over this like gunmetal prison sneeze guard, which is exactly how ours looked at school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked about this, about how everybody was uh, starving at school. Wasn't lunch at your schools, because it was for mine, a very stressful I was very stressed out because there was not enough time to eat and there was not enough food. And we competed for food. Like we had to protect our trays because all the kids were hungry and we'd always be trying to steal each other's food. And that's so terrible because that never happened in my school because I would just eat lunch or whatever. And then I could also just wander back in the back where my mom was and just hang out and get whatever <laughs> I wanted, including all the cart items. We did. So I was never stressed. And out. if you were the last class to get there, you wouldn't get enough food. When I was in high school, even my friends and I, my nerdy friends, we would run to lunch to get that's ahead. so sad. Which, if if you wanted to impress any girls, hang that up because boys running to the lunchroom because you really want that. Because you were starving. I to was death. starving. See, this is so funny too. Because by contrast, let me. This is the cushy existence I had, and and I fully own this because guess what? My existence was not cushy any other way. Uh-huh. Just being a lunch lady's daughter and having access to the to the lunchroom at any hour was super sweet, and it was a trade off for the shame of being a lunch lady's daughter. Okay, <laughs> so whatever. I remember just like, I don't know, randomly in the middle of class, you know, 1030 in the morning, I'd be like, I have a craving for like some tomatoes and ranch dressing. And then I just like go to my mom to be like, hey, mom, do you guys have any tomatoes and ranch dressing? I just want that. And then I'd come back oh, to like incredible. driver's ed with a bowl of it. And, and, you know, and then at one point they got a cappuccino machine. And at that point, that's then, crazy. Yeah. Cause we could always eat and drink in class because. It was pre-Columbine, and I guess, I don't know, they just let us do what we wanted I guess to. so. So, I, yeah, it was good times as far as I remember. I feel like you and I were uh, destined to uh, be together because I just loved the lunch food. And even in uh, <laughs> middle school and high school, I was a kid who'd always raise my hand and ask the teacher, like, can you read the lunch menu? I wanted to hear it so bad. <laughs> I made a comic book that I shared with the class about different cafeteria foods. What he was called, it was called The Contender, about a boxing uh, chicken tender. And he uh, fought his arch enemy betrayal mix. That's and, very cute. And uh, the teacher loved it. Everybody else was rolling their eyes. But I was so hungry. <laughs> They thought Will had worms when he was growing up because he just like wanted to eat all the time. And he was real thin. Mostly it was just you did not get enough protein guess, in your I diet. I guess so. One more thing I was going to say, because I just have so much to say about this. There's a whole culture of public school lunchrooms. Like there's all these like your own language. Like there was all this stuff about like breaking in line, getting ups in line, getting extra. Like you're going to get extra. How much is extra? You always, t- you always talk about that. One time I got extra rolls for 25 cents, which got me like um, eight rolls. And I remember a teacher, uh, I'll go ahead and say it, it was Miss Griffin. She came up to me and she was like, you're not going to eat all that. And I was determined. I ate my whole plate and all eight rolls, went and showed her. And she just says, mm, wasteful. <laughs> yeah, it's and, wasteful when you eat something when you're a growing child. Okay, so I guess I was really excited to talk about Lunch Ladies because so I loved it. Because the Lunch Lady in the Bubble Tent commercial is someone to be made fun of. <laughs> yes. And we didn't really turn the corner on that culturally until Adam Sandler's Lunch Lady list, I know. Who we could have put in this t- countdown. Yeah. I didn't pick it. I, you we'll know, talk I about the honorable mentions because I, I feel like we do need to talk about that. And I also just feel like, though, that um, like my sister and I did a campaign just informally and constantly to make lunch ladies cool in our school. Like I, like my sister mm-hmm. started it to deal with the shame of being a lunch lady's daughter. Oh, okay. And then, so by the time, like by the time 
I was in high school, there was kind of like a hipster cachet around lunch ladies. I, totally makes I sense. I swear to totally you. Totally makes sense. After my sister and I started this up, it was really my sister and her friends, was the year that Adam Sandler did Lunch Lady Land Wow, on they were SNL. ready for it. And we were like, we did that. Mm-hmm. Like, we caused that. Because who else except for Lunch Lady's daughters could put that into the collective consciousness? <laughs> exactly. I'm just taking credit for it. That's all. Well, I think this commercial captured the character we recognized instantly in the era when the lunch lady's powers were strongest. Number six. That was like the most impassioned defense and love letter to lunch ladies I've ever heard. (laughs) There might be more where that came from. I don't know. But for right now, I'm going to give you number six, which is Mrs. Kim from Pong Joon-ho's 2019 film Parasite. Oh, okay. All right. If you've not seen this movie, it's streaming everywhere, so watch it. And also, I'm really proud. Can I just say I'm really proud whenever I do a current pick? Because, you know, we just talked about 80s lunch ladies and, like, early 90s lunch mm-hmm. ladies for a good bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is this is a, a cook from today's world. Uh-huh. We really now, did like this movie. It was a really good one. And you really should just go into it with no expectations. But, you know, we will just say that um, in this film, Mrs. Kim, under extraordinary circumstances, whips together a meal called Ramdan, which was invented for the film. Uh-huh. It's um, uh, two types of Korean instant noodles mixed together and cooked with a very, very high-quality sirloin steak. And in the film, it's Han Wu, which is like a luxury beef. Okay. All right. And so she's making this for Da Song, the son of the Park family. Um, if you've not seen Parasite, this is a film about a son from a poor family who kind of lucks into a job from his friend as a tutor for a kid in a rich family, the Parks. And then he gradually kind of gets his entire family jobs with this wealthy family, including his mom. Um, but they're keeping it secret. And, uh, of course, this, this film is really about class divide. Mm-hmm. And it's fantastic if you've not seen it. But they keep it secret, and um, Mrs. Kim is the cook, but their relationship is not known to the whole family because, you know, his uh, the son's position as a tutor is upwardly mobile, right? Yeah. But the rest of them are, like, servant class. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating, and it's great. And I will say that we did try to make a version of Ram Dunn yeah. after the film because everybody did, and it was fun, and you should do it. But um, it is an invention of the film, and... Very few people can pull together a meal so smoothly we had... in chaos. There is uh, someone whose family is from Korea on our uh, marketing team at work and we were asking her about the movie and she said there was a lot of uh, stuff in the non-translated version that, uh, you know, Koreans will recognize. There's a lot more class jokes about the types of foods they are eating and what they ask for and that sort of thing. There's all kinds of interesting cooking stuff happening in that movie that the subtitles can't even capture, even though I understand they did a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was reading as well, especially because um, I I think that the deal with this dish in particular was supposed to be that you know, of course, any child is going to like instant noodles, but the mom thought it was so déclassé that he wanted instant noodles. She had to have the fancy meat. Again, watch it if you haven't, but I, I got to give Mrs. Kim props for executing a, a beautifully mm-hmm. made meal under very weird circumstances. And 
hopefully none of us have have to cook with that same sort of stress. Have you ever had to make food in stressful circumstances? See, I really haven't. I was going to say, like, it's always like a little stressful if you ever have to cook a turkey for Thanksgiving, which uh-huh. I haven't done in many years because I've been vegetarian for like many years. But, you know, sometimes you do anyway. You like cook it and you're like, is this going to work? Because there's a whole lot of bird in there that okay. may not turn out good. I will say, and I was going to talk about this for a, a pick that didn't make it on the list, is that I do have a problem where I get real scared about meat being cooked all the way. And I do that remember stressful. I tried the Blue Apron thing and they had a fish and I, I cooked it down to the size of a dime uh, because I just didn't believe it until it was gone. So there's you, a parable there somewhere. If you were making Han Wu, there is a parable there. <laughs> if you are, you would, that would just be really, really sad. And my, uh, I, I was a roommate with somebody who I didn't know at the time also had OCD. So we really enabled each other a lot when we were in college and we thought it'd be fun to grill chicken for the first time. And we both ate it probably a little too soon and then got scared after the fact. And he made himself throw up, but I couldn't make myself do it. I, yeah, that is just so funny. That is so funny. Oh my God. We used to be terrible. I used to call the poison control center when I swallowed too much mouthwash. I mean, we were out of control. <laughs> <laughs> And that lady on the phone was such a pro. She's used to deal with people like you all the time. She says, yeah, scares the hell out of you, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Actual advice and empathy from the lady at Poison Control. I just, it was a whole bunch. Okay. I didn't, I didn't mean to make a whole cap. She's like, you're fine. fine." (laughs) Bless you. I'm glad you eventually got correct therapy for OCD. Like if you guys relate to any of that at all, you should really go get the correct yes. kind of therapy for OCD. And a real OCD therapist, not a not a general therapist who says they could do OCD. You need a real OCD specialist. Yeah. It's intense, dude. That's intense. You're going to be good friends with the poison control lady. Cannot do that. Thank goodness those days are over. Anyway, Mrs. Kim. Number five. So my next pick, this is number five, I think. Yes. This is another lunch lady, but this time <laughs> in space, which is where everything's headed when we start is talking. This list is going to be riddled with lunch ladies. <laughs> this is Lala Hiyama, an anthropomorphic bear who is the cook and dorm mother for mech pilots on the spaceship Sidonia. This is from the manga and sci-fi series on Netflix called Knights of Sidonia. Okay. So, I have nothing to add it's, so it's far. It's exciting. It's exciting. I can't wait to talk about it. So Knights of Sidonia focuses on these mech pilots who defend the remnants of humanity who live on these city-sized spaceships uh, where humans can do all kinds of fun sci-fi things like reproduce asexually and derive energy from photosynthesis. That's just that's just extra fun. Don't worry about that. Uh, okay. And this one city spaceship they're on is called Sidonia. Everyone is fleeing these spaceship aliens who are always uh, hunting their ship. And Lala shows up, our uh, bear lunchroom lady, uh, because our main character is this kid named uh, Nagate Tanizaki, Tanikazi, who used to live in the slums before he became a knight of Sidonia. And he doesn't really have any support system. So Lala decides to help him set up his living quarters and prepares his food because she knew his grandfather. And she also, um, you know, is like a cafeteria worker for other people on the ship. You must be the underdweller everyone's been talking about. <laughs> Hello, I'm Lala Hiyama, the dorm mother. Oh, this? I hurt myself when I was very young, but don't worry. It's never once interfered with my work. Never mind that. Your clothes really stink. You need to get changed. 
So uh, I picked this one because I thought it was kind of funny because it reminded me of how when you were younger, you could run into people just at stores and stuff that knew you, but you didn't know they knew you because they knew your family. Uh, and this, <laughs> this is especially true of if, if you're from a small town, which I imagine a spaceship yeah. would very much be like a small town. So we always were, had to really make sure we were practicing good manners and not like making fun of people like obnoxious kids do because there was a good chance that the lunchroom lady or the lady at the restaurant or the store was somebody your mom worked with or used to work at this restaurant where your dad used to go when he was in high school. It is funny that that is a situation that I think only people who grow up in small towns really understand. And it is mind blowing to witness it because I remember the first time I ever went to visit Will's hometown of Bainbridge, Georgia. I remember his parents just interacting with so many people out in public, just like they all knew everybody and everyone (laughs) knew each other. And it just blew my mind. I, I just never had that experience. And it before. would get back to them. Sometimes they, Yeah, you can you can't just go around running your big mouth. Sometimes it would. And they they'd be like, Yeah, I talked to so and so at the bank. He said you and uh Richard was out there having a pretty good time. <laughs> and he was like, Yeah <laughs> Uh, and, and that was often the case at restaurants. I, re- I remember, you know, it'd be some lady who used to, uh, her family owned the restaurant for They said y'all left a mess up there in that booth. Exactly. I told exactly. them that ain't my son. Yeah, I don't think you need to be hanging out with them anymore. That, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is kind of interesting, like Alfred from Batman or something. Like you got this, uh, like generational <laughs> relationship and this personal relationship from cooks and the people they serve over the years is kind of interesting. But also, she's a bear, and we should talk about that just a little bit for fun. Just <laughs> I the, feel like it's necessary. Just the sci-fi part. I think the bear thing really works for the uh, sort of dorm mother type character. Like, yeah. bears are very motherly, and so in addition to having that personal connection because it's like a cook who's serving you, and it's like his mom, it's also like a mother bear thing, which I think is pretty sweet and pretty funny. That's nice. And her hand is a claw, so it's sort of like the discipline part of being a mother too, I guess. I don't know. And it would help you... Chop vegetables. Uh, yeah. In I fact, she assume. may do that. I'll have to go back and look. I don't remember that. Uh, they don't get far. En- they hadn't gotten far enough in the Netflix series to explain her deal. But I've read a little bit online about how this may be a life support suit that just looks Ooh. like a bear. Because I think she used to be like in the defense forces and the shapeshifters got her or something. But uh, she does not like people saying her real name for some reason. And she bear roars at them when they do. And that's pretty fun. Now, how far away are we from life support suits that we can customize to be more fun? I know. I love it. Can that happen in our lifetimes? Even if it's just for crazy millionaires, we can figure out a way to buy one. Yeah. And it does seem that crazy to me. Like in, in Japan, there's a lot more like costuming and like cute uh, couture type stuff. I could see somebody choosing like a yeah. bear outfit. They they already have like sort of, they're not exoskeletons. You couldn't really call it that, but sort of support suits that yeah. have been invented yeah. for seniors with walking difficulties. Well, I think Lala used to have that. It looked like um, one of those old uh, submersible diving suits and okay. then she like bared it up. So. Well, it already is round want, like a hit, you know. You, I just want this. <laughs> and then also tactical gear for your everyday life and you don't have to think about what to wear because it's just a bear suit. Well, knowing about Lila's trauma, I mean, I guess I'll just close this by saying, um, you know, you never know what somebody is going through. So be nice to everyone, especially lunchroom ladies. Always be nice to lunch ladies. Number four. Luckily, my next pick is not a lunch lady because, again... This is, this is the Lunch Lady Show, whether we like it or not. Um, at number four, 
I give you Artie Bucco from The Sopranos. Oh, okay. I was thinking about were The you Sopranos. Going, were you thinking about him? Okay, so in a show that is just completely riddled with amazing minor characters, like for me, Artie Bucco doesn't even make the top five, but like, you know, he is, he is important to mention because he is the chef slash third generation proprietor of a restaurant called Vesuvio that mm-hmm. all the mobsters love to go with to with their with their spouses to feel fancy, and there's um, tons and and cooking is such a big deal for like uh, mafia movies and like The Sopranos and everything because everybody needs a sit down you know everything happens over a dinner good things and bad yeah good th- yeah and good so the restaurant's a big deal the restaurant is a very big deal it's a big location and of course there are plots around the restaurant including one where eventually. Uh, Tony burns it down. <laughs> Got to get that insurance money. <laughs> for, for, for many reasons. Actually, we're here to investigate some recent irregularities in charge activity here at Nuevo Vesuvio. Nuevo. Irregularities? Well, there is credit card fraud going on in this restaurant. That's impossible. Based on cardholder disputes, we show nine hits in this locus that precede fraudulent activity. What does that mean? People's card numbers were copied, and those numbers were used to rack up thousands of dollars in phony charges. Wait, you think I'm ripping off my own customers? That's insane. Were these meals actually served? What's going on? Someone's stealing. Oh, oh also, I, I just love, like, little details that they put in. Like, they'll come home with, like, those swan foil-wrapped thing. Like, it's like swan foil leftover wraps. Yeah. And they, I assume they take those home from Vesuvio all the time. It's, like, very classy and elegant, <laughs> yeah. you know? What I love about Artie Bucco is that... He really loves to like hold court at the restaurant and feel like a big man. But the funny thing is he is like completely powerless about any and everything happening in his restaurant and in his life. He's totally at the mercy of these chaotic elements, which of course is the crime families and all of their doings. And sometimes his fortunes are good because of their doings, but then frequently they just do what they want. And he is just like this impotent, hilarious character who's trying to hold on to his dignity like with all he's got and he just can't do it mm-hmm. he has none there is none excuse me a martina it's like a martini but it's from albania <laughs> i never heard of it well apparently they go down real easy right ben yeah like it, this is just a great example of someone who is using like the sh- it's like the sh- it's the chef archetype in a way to make someone seem like classier and more elevated up than uh-huh. they actually are. But it's just really someone who is grasping at whatever little bit of dignity they could possibly have. And, and you could see why that's such a conflict for him because his wife can't stand that he's tied up with all these criminals. And she's always saying like, you've got to cut them loose, but it's also his only Avenue to like uh, power and celebrity at all. And so it's his whole identity. And so he's always torn between the two of those. Yeah. He's a, he's a great character. Ugh, that show is so good. It is. It really is. I was gonna say, he's a great character and he's like, not even the best side character. <laughs> There's like every, like, Everybody, Silvio and Polly Walnut, it's like literally everybody is better than him, but they're all so great yeah. too. <laughs> That's a good show. It's a it's a stressful show, but it's a great show also to look at early two thousands fashion. And their house. Oh my lord. And their so, house. Yeah. And of course my favorite, which is AJ Soprano's new metal shirts. <laughs> which I follow a novelty Twitter account that yeah. just tweets that. I love why was he in his room like looking at his computer with his shirt off? That was, that was the best so moment of the whole series. Funny. That was the best moment of the whole series. <laughs> love it. Number three. Okay, for number three, 
one thing we haven't said about cooks is they have all the gossip from the highest to lowest rank, wherever they are, they know everybody. They, they are friends with captains. They are friends with soldiers. They are friends with popular people, unpopular people, and everybody's bending their ear about their problems or whatever they're thinking about. Even in space. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there would be some space, everything. I almost thought you would like nominate the replicator for the best cook. Oh my God, that is really funny. I'm glad you did. No, everybody, everybody, nobody likes the replicator food. Uh, (laughs) I want to talk about quote, the cook from Star Trek enterprise. This is actually Commander Riker. Do you remember this? Do you know what I'm talking about? I saw a reminder about this when we were doing research for this episode. Oh, funny. I do remember, yes, that Riker was like real proud of himself and like wanted, he was like a cooking hobbyist, but then it turns out he's not very good at it. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, That's that's true too. And that's probably where he got this idea. But uh, in Enterprise, he posed as the cook for the oh, ship. Okay. Um everybody this was the last episode of Enterprise. I have not it was ever the Farewell episode and everybody hated it. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll get into it. Okay, but okay, but first I'll circle back in case you're a little bit confused right. if you're not super Star Trek-y. I'm uh, not. If you hear us mention sometimes Star Trek Enterprise and you're thinking, isn't that the ship they're on? Yes, it is the name of the ship from the shows, but it's also the name of one of the Star Trek shows. Uh, the show Enterprise is set before Kirk and the original crew. This is the Scott Bakula is the captain show. And in the last episode of this show, we actually start with the next generation crew in the 24th century. This is Picard's group. And we see Commander William Riker studying some files because he's trying to make a difficult decision about whether to share top secret info with Captain Picard or not that he's not supposed to. So this is where... And he's not supposed to. Yeah. Oh, actually, there was, you remember the Next Generation episode called Pegasus when there was the dirtbag captain that came on and because he was an admiral, uh, he uh, took command of the ship and he told Riker, you're not allowed to tell Captain Picard about the sneaky crap I'm up to. And basically the Federation had been developing a cloaking device and uh, it was top secret. And Riker, okay, and I do Ri- remember Riker that. Riker ended up spilling the beans. But okay, so this is where it gets funny. So what do you do when you have to make a hard decision? You find your girlfriend and go to the holodeck to visit the Enterprise crew on their last mission to gain some weird kind of helpful wisdom that might tell you whether to tell Captain Picard about these secrets or not. And so that's what he's doing. It looks a lot like procrastinating. <laughs> so. <laughs> Has the Andorian hailed them? Not yet. You might want to leap ahead to that point. It's where things start really happening. And you should consider taking over the galley. Why? Well, Starfleet ships didn't have counselors in those days, but the chef on the first Enterprise came pretty close. I read almost everybody confided in him. I'll keep that in mind. So he does this by posing as the ship's cook, even though we've never seen a cook on the entire four-season run of Enterprise. No! Uh, But you also mentioned that Riker was a cook in his own right, and we got to see that some in the Picard episode from last season that we didn't really like, and... I have some strong feelings about that. That episode was fine. That episode was fine. I don't. I hated the rest of the series so much that I thought that episode was okay. Anyway, (laughs) well, I don't mind Riker being a cook. You know, he's like a man's man, and that's kind of like a like a cool dude thing to be able to do. Uh, But Rebecca was just mentioning the OCD stuff. This may be a weird thing of mine, but I had to mention it because it drives me personally crazy. 
Sometimes cooking stuff in fiction, in novels or shows, really drives me crazy because it's the opposite of show, don't tell. And they use cooking and food as like a shortcut for sentimentality or to try to force you to feel something or uh, say something without really proving it. Yeah, it's a pretty, it can be a really tortured metaphor. Yeah, it can be too cute. Like um, they're trying to force some sentimentality like this is a family and these are foods we like. And the best example of that I can think of, like the easiest one, are when they pick like cute foods that don't have anything to do with the story and aren't necessary. Like, like Riker in this episode, like he's making a pizza. And like, I was like, I hated that. I just hated they picked pizza. I thought it was so stupid. And Picard, I do feel like pizza was a weird food for them. Because they thought it was cute. Because we all like pizza and like feels like real homey and like a family. It's like, no, you show that when you're storytelling. Don't just give us pizza and think that did the work. Pizza with tomato basil and non-venomous bunny corn sausage. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, um, especially because then you're just distracted being like, okay, well, what's like the evolution of pizza exactly, yes. over the centuries since today? And like in the 24th century, what will we think about pizza? What will it be made of? Like, right. what, what? And he's living on a different planet. It might have weird stuff on it. That could have been funny. Smell that. And Tyrian basil. Mm. Grows like weeds around here. The other one, and this may be a personal thing for me that I cannot stand. Do you know the food word that drives me crazy? Hot cocoa. Cocoa. I can't cocoa. stand it. Will hates when people talk about how many cups cup of hot cocoa. Yes. You, you know why? Because it's people trying to impose uh, intimacy on you. Like they want you to observe them feeling cozy. And there's one thing I can't stand. It's somebody saying the word cocoa while holding a cup of it with two hands. It just upsets me so much. I, do, I just can't tell you why. It's a weird thing. It's just because it's like it's like somebody showing up at your house in their pajamas to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. I, I sound like a fun person. I know. But it's just some weird thing. It just it hits my brain so funny. So anyway, I feel like this character is so funny because he just ticked all the bad boxes but also represented the bending the cook's ear thing that was funny to me. And I just had a lot to say about it, so here you go. <laughs> here you go. That's fine. I just have lots of feelings about it. So We're both getting pretty worked up. So less of, less of that in Picard and more of Seven of Nine's Space Rangers is what I think. I can't believe that Seven of Nine got to plug herself into the Borg cube, but like didn't, didn't use it. do anything with yeah. it. Why didn't you show me all that if she's not going to take it and shoot some stuff yeah, with it? Yeah, she should have driven it a little bit. Showed her like really straining and like the cube shuddering. Yeah, and... show her crash landing it and get whatever. And then she was like, now we're cooking. <laughs> yeah, she definitely would have said that. Hire us to write the show. Stop yelling. Number two. Okay, well, the hits start coming and they don't stop coming because <laughs> at number two, a classic lunch lady we cannot ignore, lunch lady Doris from The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this right? This is also one of those like instantly recalls our stereotype of a lunch lady. Yes, and it, it is funny because I did want to talk about this a little bit before. Like, I always recognized those cultural stereotypes about the lunch lady and they were always very much like Lunch Lady Doris, right? Where it, it is like the completely disgusted adult who is smoking and who has like dirt splattered on their apron. That's you work with the terrible. ingredients you have. We're all just here. Just that's deal exactly with it. This right. is what's for lunch. And it is funny because I do think Southern lunch ladies are a little bit different from like a lunch lady Doris lunch lady stereotype because Southern ladies are more 
Well, they're they're more joyful. In well, they the bring lunch their room. own uh, feelings uh, and passions about food into their job, even if the job isn't set up that way. They yeah. they put it into the preparation. Oh, here, 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 baby, you get you some more, baby. Like, yeah. you know what I mean. There was lots of here, baby, get you some more. Like that yeah. is definitely the kind of lunch ladies that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that I don't appreciate. Lunch they also lady remember doors. your social security number because for some reason at my school that's what you had to give them to type into your account, and they would memorize your social security number. Yes, that would not fly today. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think that that would be cool. On The Simpsons, which we all know about, Lunch Lady Doris, along with the other adults at the school, like uh, Principal Skinner and Miss Hoover, they all function as a foil for Lisa and her idealism, like, frequently, <laughs> you know. And then also just she's constantly used as a gag to make fun of the underfunding of American public schools, mm-hmm. which is a shame. And, I mean, like, we've got a very long list of shames that we need to be correcting, but this is one of them because I think it's fundamentally unfair for a child to be born in a zip code that means that their school is funded less well than a child born in a different zip code. That's bullshit. Like it's a hundred percent. Like I just can't even believe like this is still going on, but whatever. Mm -hmm. But lunch lady, (laughs) but with that said, lunch lady Doris is a funny, is a funny character. You know, there's very little meat in these gym mats. I do (laughs) love that they used her this whole time. And, I love her energy of being completely broken, but then also somehow good-natured about it, you know? Like, whatever she's doing, she'll just, you know, whether it's putting a empty hot dog bun on Lisa's tray to be the vegetarian option, <laughs> or grinding up gym mats uh, for, for the people to eat because there's not enough meat. She is part of the school. She's just an arm of the, of the underfunded school. Start putting money back into the school. You cut back on everything. Salaries, supplies, the food. I don't care what you say, I can taste the newspaper. Posh. Shredded newspapers add much-needed roughage and essential inks. Besides, you didn't notice the old gym mats. There's very little meat in these gym mats. Oh, I also do love the gag where in one of the episodes, she's also the nurse. And, and like, why is there a lunch lady posing as the nurse? And she says, I get two paychecks this way. <laughs> Which again, what's this? Just, okay, it's funny. But it's near and dear to my heart because of the reasons we actually already mentioned. My mom was a lunch lady. And um, just the lunch lady, lunch lady culture was my bag in the 90s. Really was into it. What do you want these beef hearts? On the floor. It doesn't look very clean. Just do your job, heart boy. Before we name our top cook, we feel compelled to list some honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. All right, so it would be... We would be remiss if we did not mention the rat from Ratatouille. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was a cute movie, but you know, I'm like not into anime. Like, that's just not my zhuzh. It's uh-huh. fine. Um, I'm also going to give uh, props to Sofia Petrillo of the Golden Girls, mm-hmm. who was frequently shown to be an amazing Italian cook. And then finally, I almost made this one a pick, but I couldn't pick two from the same year. <laughs> Willem Dafoe's character in The Lighthouse, who gives <laughs> a two minute long insane ranting speech where he curses Robert Pattinson with the sea curse because he didn't like his, the way his lobster was cooked. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, this is he, before they were drinking kerosene. <laughs> yeah. Or it was the whole time they were drinking okay. kerosene. But anyway, and fun fact about that scene, when he curses him with the sea curse, Willem Dafoe does the take in two minutes without blinking. 
no blinking for two minutes and he delivers the whole just free just watch that movie but it was because he was a better cook than robert pattinson gave him credit for that was such a good movie <laughs> was such a good movie but those are all my that was some good crazy stuff <laughs> that was the best crazy stuff and i loved that movie it was ridiculous i'm gonna anyway. i'm gonna pick uh chef from south park who was oh, yeah. it was a big deal oh yeah duh totally uh Long John Silver from Black Sails, who also posed as a cook who was not a cook and figured out very quickly that he is going to be killed if he does not figure out how to cook and because he got everybody sick because he did not know how to cook a pig. That's pretty funny. The panic, the panic he felt was so fun in that first episode where he has to cook because they land, they put in port somewhere, and then the guy who's like the quartermaster is like, okay, go um, buy some pigs, and uh, the men will be eating in about two hours. And he was like, <laughs> like oh uh... my God, where do I start? That's so funny. Um, I was like Grandma Adams, who was making uh, horrible stuff in her stew. Oh, yeah. And uh, Roadblock from G.I. Joe, who just happens to cook, uh, just is funny to me. Oh, like, okay. <laughs> he wasn't even a cook for the... <laughs> For the GI Joes, he he does other he does like real stuff, but he also is just he has a dinner cook. parties where yeah. like Snake Eyes and them come over. For, I don't know. I that was the only GI Joe whose name I could remember. <laughs> that's a fine. good one. If you're gonna remember one, that's a good one. That's the only one. So, who's your number one cook of all time? Number one. Well, you better hope she didn't make no kerosene cucumbers. I want to talk about Aunt B from the Andy Griffith Show. <laughs> Aww, this is that sweet. She's the good one. Uh, Aww, that is okay. Yeah, okay. No, I'll let you talk. Oh, and sure. Then I'll no, say stuff. And well, then I'll say stuff. To be clear, this is Aunt B, who is actually the aunt of Andy Taylor, the sheriff of Mayberry in the Andy Griffith Show. But everybody in town calls her Aunt B. What in the world are you doing? Coloring. What? The house, the rug, or yourself? <laughs> well, Andy Taylor, body'd have to get up mighty early in the morning to put one over on B. Taylor. I know it must be here someplace. Oh, I've changed my mind. I think I've hit on just the right recipe. Going to enter the competition after all. Yeah. Uh, ribbon. Yes, sir. I'm going to enter these pickles. These. <laughs> and. I had to pick this one, even though I had lots of others on the list, because she's exactly who I think of when I hear the word cook. And that's probably because she is the best example I can think of, of the matriarch cook where we grew up. They got everything right about her. She is exactly our grandmothers and aunts in the South, especially the Southeast, I think. Uh, Do you know this kind of lady I'm talking about? Well, I mean, my, my mamaw was a hell of a cook. You know, she well, her food was excellent, and she cooked constantly for everyone. So, like, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think she was a little less uh, sweet than Aunt B. I think Aunt <laughs> B was very, very my, like. But this is not a dig. I get all of the wonderful sense of sarcasm from that side of my family, like my dad's side. And so, my mamaw was a very, very amazing cook and a matriarch cook, like you mm-hmm. said. But well, I mean, they all have different personalities, but yeah. the, the the core things are still true. The core things are still true. Aunt B was a very very sweet version of this. Of yes, this and she was wild, which I'll get to, which I didn't remember. I'll tell you a little bit about her and and, and see if some of some of these uh, things in your life come up too. But so her deal is that she's hired to run the home of the widower sheriff in Mayberry. and helps him look after his boy. I always forget that Aunt B is like not related. Well. His paternal aunt, 
It is. Okay. Um, but I mean, kind of like a, it's a live-in situation. Right. She's not doing it for funsies. Right, right. Yes, yeah, so it's a job for her. Yes. And she helps him look after uh, his boy, Opie, who's Ron Howard. And she's exactly my grandmother and her friends, what, who they were. She loves the community of her church. It's not, a, it's not even necessarily as much about the church, but all the friends and all the people and mm-hmm. the popularity contest at church. And she has got the best hat. Yes. She has an antagonistic (laughs) relationship with her best friend, Clara. They compete in cooking and singing and men in town and stuff. And the kitchen is her kingdom. And so this is something I absorbed about aunt B, but forgot about until I watched the show again. Like I said, she is like a mother figure and she is a stabilizing force for the Taylor home. But and this is why I like her so much. She's very much represents the kind of small town nonsense and craziness that Andy's always having to sort out. Like she's always dating medicine men and getting caught up in really crazy pickle making competitions with her arch enemy and best friend. And he, uh, <laughs> it is the same one and the same. Yeah. So it's all the crazy uh, Southern character stuff that I didn't remember. Uh, there was a really good episode where the mountain man, Briscoe Darling, declares for her and totes her to his mountain home. And to get out of that situation, she henpecks him to death until he can't stand it no more. <laughs> and he's like, like, and he said, he's tired of getting hit by that spoon. And so Aww. she gets to leave. I spill on my shirt. I don't spill on my pants. Well, nice people don't spill at all. <laughs> but this is a big thing about Southern characters that I know you and I have talked about where uh, they live in their own world with their own weird little rules and you just kind of have to accept them and go along with them for the day to move forward. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and so all the, the way Andy solves her problems all the time is he has to indulge it and then let her figure it out. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like there is an element of indulgence, which I really enjoy. Oh, for even, even in, for us, even for the, uh, Mother matriarch cooking in our lives. That's true, too. Well, yeah, like there, there's a big element of that in Southern culture that I feel like um, is it's really comedic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I don't see it represented well in popular culture often enough, even though I did hear a great interview um, with Bill Hader about the character Stefan uh-huh. and, and the reason why that character, like the reason why that character on SNL was so popular was because there was an element where part of the humor or a good deal of the humor is just how indulgent Seth is of the insanity of Stefan. When yeah. Steph comes on, Stefan comes on there, says all this crazy stuff, laughs, and Seth Myers is just very, very indulgent of the whole thing. And that's something that I feel is present in a lot of Southern humor and Southern uh-huh. culture. Um, that's also, again, like, I don't, I don't want to be obnoxious. That's why Danny McBride's things are so funny. That to is me. why Danny McBride is so funny. He's an absurd presumption of authority and everything. You just have to accept it. It's hilarious. And sometimes you do, like, to keep the wheels rolling, <laughs> yes. which is, like, it's Or funny. to communicate with them. Or to communicate, or just anything. And, I mean, I don't want to be obnoxious, but if you've listened to Curtle Holler, the mm-hmm. whole character of pumpkin and how everyone interacts with pumpkin is an example of this. It's Mm -hmm. just someone who is operating by their own rules because they are that much of a character and you just indulge them. Sure. Pumpkin, it's your store, you know, like, of course, whatever you want, you just let people do it because I don't know, politeness. I don't know why, but it's funny. If you ever watched, uh, 
Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and you're wondering, what's the deal with people like this? That's what it is. The man with the fly on the string. That's how it is. Yeah, um, you just indulge people of their quirks. Uh, I can think of another good example of this from uh, Aunt B when she gets she's getting really mad at Barney Fife, who got this car that keeps almost running her over. She tells Andy that she would like to set up a tripwire because she saw it in a World War II movie where they... Uh, <laughs> got some people on some motorcycles to hit it and their heads got cut off. And Andy says, well, ain't B, we don't want to kill him. Maybe hurt him a little, but we don't want to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) See, I love he has to seriously entertain her, like her idea. Let's think about that. No student can escape the magic of and grinders, hoagies and grinders, hoagies and grinders, navy beans, navy beans, navy beans. So, I'm not sure what I just learned from this list, but I know I had fun. I still think that cooks are kind of like often our window into the world and personal life of our characters when yeah. they show up. I think yeah. I think that's true. Um, and I think also I learned I really want to preserve and enshrine the lunch lady character. Yeah. Because as nutrition gets good and appropriate in schools, I'm worried that we're going to lose the cafeteria experience. Yeah, and that'll just be sad. Where else are kids going to learn to eat as fast as you possibly can and then just eat Tums when you're done? Like I still do because I got trained out of panic in middle school. That's very sad. I used to spit on my pizza when I get it so nobody would steal it when I when I get That's it. That's just I just I'm very sad for you. I'm very sad that you I get enough food now. I'm I'm very sad that you couldn't go to high school with me yeah. where you would have been showered with free pizza circles. I just I just yeah, I love I also love I like the octagon pizza the best. I did not like the slices. I like the I like the lunchroom stop sign pizza. Yeah, some people had that and then some people had the rectangle. We always mm-hmm. had we were rectangle okay. school. Except for the a la carte pizza, which was a circle. <laughs> this may become a lunch lady show. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We have to do a separate countdown about lunch ladies. I don't know. Well, if you want to tell us about your lunchroom experience, email us at rumors at the com, or really do talk to us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And we uh, might talk about it on the show and, and we'll talk to you about it there. Rebecca... I guess I, we know where people can follow us, so tell us some more stuff about our show. You can visit thewizardsnightshirt.com to find out about this show and our other shows, like Curdle Holler, which I just mentioned, um, our original Halloween comedy series, as well as a complete archives of our Masters of the Universe review show. I did not read that well, but you've heard it mm-hmm. before. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we call forth new champions. New lunch, new lunch ladies. New lunch ladies. Tell of a hero facing down fears and cutting down foes. There's no resemblance to what you know when your own deeds feel humble and fear.